tonight's our uh, seventh and final night. So um, the class does end this evening. This is our final night together. And I want to thank all of you for, for coming over the past uh, several weeks. I hope you found it refreshing and enriching and informative. And you've connected some of the dots between uh, the Reformation and Scripture and the Scripture and society and different connections between denominational groups and maybe learned a little bit more about your own background and uh, most importantly been refreshed in your own beliefs. And what I'd like to do, I'd, I'd like to uh, teach for quite a while and then uh, reserve some time uh, later tonight to talk about three questions which I put on your sheets. And that is, um, how has the study clarified or muddied your view of the gospel? I'm hoping most of you have, been clar have had clarity brought, but maybe some of you haven't. How has it affected your, your view of the church that you belong to? Um, so we're not going to criticize churches, but just how has it helped you to shape your view of your church positively or negatively? Or you can also just make neutral but interesting comments. And then how do you see it has affected and shaped society? And, and just any other questions that you... you uh, those are just kind of to get, a, get the conversation going, but we want to have some some more conversation at the end tonight. So uh, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer, and uh, then we will get into it. So Father God, thank you for the fact that 500 years ago, on this day, that a dramatic event happened that really would change Europe and the world and so many of our lives. And we know by your sovereign grace, you could have used anybody to do that under any circumstances, but humanly speaking, we thank you that it did happen when it did, and we've been the uh, recipients of five centuries of thoughtful reflection upon Scripture, and uh, we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're not relying upon our own good deeds. <clears throat> we're not relying upon the merits of those that have gone before us, but we do believe that the merits of Christ are sufficient to cleanse us of our sins and to uh, secure for us a place with you for all of eternity. So we're thankful for that, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts. And we pray that you would uh, encourage us tonight as we continue to talk about the effects and implications of the Reformation on others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've, we've looked at Luther. We spent a couple weeks on Luther. We have looked at the Lutherans and their effect on culture in the church. We discussed the reformers, Calvin, some of the folks that lived at the time that uh, he was reforming the Genevan church, and we, we spent some time discussing the Anabaptists. We've spent some time discussing the uh, Church of England, the Anglican church, and how that came about. And tonight we're going to spend just a little brief period of time talking about uh, the, French the, the French Reformation, and then we're going to jump right into uh, a, a, a conversation, a, a teaching session on the Puritans or the Pilgrims. The Pur Puritans, some of which would become known as the Pilgrims. And you'll remember that last week we talked about the fact that when Bloody Mary died and Elizabeth I ascended to the throne, that a lot of the Protestant reformers that had been chased out of England at the time came back across the channel, and um, they really were the forefathers and foremothers of the, the people that we now know as the, the Puritans. And we're going to trace their steps from England to the eastern 
border of now what is known as the United States of America. So what I want to do, first of all, is introduce you to the Huguenots. Uh, the Huguenots were less a group that rallied around one person and just refers collectively to the, the, the church in France that um, was composed of reformed believers who, who bought into the doctrine, the basic doctrine of the Reformation. Now, out of the three main branches, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Anabaptists, theologically they followed in the tradition of the Calvinists. So theologically, they were reformed reformers. Okay, so a Lutheran is a Lutheran reformer. There's Anabaptist reformers, but there's also reformed reformers or Calvinistic reformers. Okay, we're kind of using the word reform twice, once in regard to the Reformation and once in regard to a particular branch of Protestantism that came about as a result of the Reformation. Now, the... French Reformation was met with a ton of resistance. There were periods of time when it was a little more loose and there was a little more freedom, but they were met with a, a lot of resistance. So when the Reformation came to France and people were converted to what we would call biblical Christianity, the state wasn't so keen on that and it was very difficult for them to flourish and start churches and worship freely. And again, you need to understand, unlike our culture, we, we just forget this. It's not that there's necessarily a deliberate attack by the aristocracy on faith, but faith and state are so intertwined that whenever there's a new faith movement, there's automatically a political dimension attached to that. And even if there isn't in the mind of the people that are reformers, the culture would say, yes, there is. So when, the, when a French king or a French noble discovers, oh, there's a new group of a newfangled kind of Christianity rising up in France, they're not just going to see that as, oh, there's a new denomination in town. There's a new church. It's just another place for people to attend. They're going to hear that as political rival, different viewpoint in how the government should be run, perhaps, or who should be in office. And in fairness to those who were holding the reins of power in Europe at the time, it was kind of true. Just like in the, maybe not so much today, but uh, I, I remember several years ago when the Reformed Party was formed and then the Canadian Alliance was formed, which eventually joined with the PC and became the Conservative Party, there was kind of like this, this feeling in a lot of evangelical churches that we were going to take back the country. So when the door is kind of opened and a political movement maybe expresses a little more of what sounds like Christianity to us, don't kid yourself, even in our generation, evangelicals will jump on that and think, oh, this is an opportunity for us to reform society, political systems, and uh, all of that. And there's some positives to that, of course, but there can also be some negatives to that, as we all, I think, are aware. So on August the 24th, this is an important date. So August the 24th, 1572, everything came, came to a head. This was a, a religious festival, and the Huguenots were arrested and 
martyred. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were put to death among these reformers, but one man that escaped claimed that 50,000, 50,000 Huguenots were uh, executed as a result of their arrests. And in certain regions, that would compose, uh, sorry, uh, not that this number would compose, but they also speculate that probably 10% of the population of France was Huguenot at the time. So it's not they got every one of them, more of them escaped and were executed, but you're talking about roughly 10% of the French population being Huguenot, 50,000 of them being executed. The rest of them literally run off into the woods and presumably some of them might even have died from exposure or malnutrition or whatever it might have been over time. And other Huguenots flee to countries that were more favorable to the Reformation or um, maybe even had other Huguenot populations. And as a result of that, there kind of becomes a diaspora of Huguenots throughout Europe and uh, even into North America in time. Now, this event took place during a, ba- a series of battles called the French Wars of Religion. So the French, the French Wars of Religion, these are basically battles for you know, political and religious power uh, in France, which took place from 1562 to 1598. 1562 to 1598. So during that period of time, we have obviously 1572, but this was sort of the, the, the zenith of martyrdom for the French Huguenots. But they were during this period of time, there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of fighting, a lot of conflict taking place uh, in France. Now, uh, in 1598, so this would have been at the, what brought the French uh, uh, wars of religion. So that should have been wars of religion, not wars of battle. Um, so at the end of this, the country uh, d- declares that the Huguenots will be permitted to function as their own entity. So this means they're given religious freedom. They're given political freedom. And they are actually allowed to form their own military. Okay? The Edict of Nantes, or Nantes, is declared. So this is a declaration which says to the Huguenots, you can form your own government. You can form your own religious autonomy, and uh, you can form your own military. So that's 1598. Now that freedom lasts for about 22 years. So 22 years, which takes us to 1620. And in 1620, the one side would say, well, the Huguenots were taking it too far. They were flexing too much muscle. They were enjoying their freedoms a little bit too much. So that's revoked. Specifically, 
military and political autonomy are revoked. Religious freedom remains. The Huguenots would say, of course, well, we're governing our own affairs, we're doing our own thing, so we can do what we want. But there's, there's this challenge to the Edict of Nantes in 1620, and it's revoked <coughs> due to what the government would call Huguenot uprisings. Now, the Huguenots maintain a certain level of religious freedom in a country that's predominantly Catholic for well over a hundred more years. But there's ups and downs, there's periods of persecution, there's challenges to their faith. But they hold on up until about 1774. So we're talking, what is that, like 150 years? So 1774, there's widespread persecution and virtually, virtually uh, all Protestant reformers are basically run out of France. Some estimate there maybe were a thousand to fifteen hundred left. So you go from ten percent of the population, whatever it might have been at the time, down to a thousand or fifteen hundred. You, you've essentially exterminated the Protestant movements including notably the Huguenots that compose the majority of them. And the remaining populations, again, largely relocate to more sympathetic countries. Now, this is several hundred years ago now. But up till recent history, with Islamic migration into France and the secularization of the Western world, so let's just go back like 50 or 60 years, it's interesting how we would normally think of France as a French, or sorry, as a Catholic country. So it, it is just, it's noteworthy when we're talking about religious reform and power and politics and, uh, you know, who, who kind of gets the biggest churches going. That does have an effect on culture, don't kid yourself, sometimes for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I, I would just make this comment. It's very difficult for us to be balanced in that regard. But I, I'm probably equally concerned with Canadian Christians in the modern era that have the mindset, we're going to like take over Canada, we're going to form like a theocracy, we're going to change all the laws and make them all Christian biblical laws. I, I'm as concerned about that as I am with Christians that are not shrewd and don't understand that certain laws, that if we don't stand against certain laws, if we don't fight for certain rights, if we don't build big, strong, prevailing churches, we are making decisions for potentially generations to come who will suffer because they won't hear the gospel preached. So we can be like super spiritual about it, of course, and just say, oh, God is sovereign. God's going to do what he's going to do. Well, that's true. God's going to do what he's going to do. But this is a physical, tangible world with certain resources, and there's this thing called time, and there's Caesars and kings and queens ruling. And God often, just look back at history, allows the conviction or lack thereof, the response to God's word or lack thereof, the decisions, the level of giving of time, talents, and treasures by God's people to shape what the church is going to look like. So again, on one hand, God's going to do what God's going to do. We believe that. But on the other hand, if we don't serve, 
and we don't stand up and we don't preach and we don't pour out our lives for the sake of the gospel, we will lose and the next generation will lose. And I remember uh, several months ago preaching, uh, uh, or maybe it was at a finance meeting or something at the church, and they made a comment about the need to be shrewd, and someone from the church that wasn't at that meeting heard about it. Of course, there's always spin on the sermon after if you weren't there, right? So basically confronted me that it's, you know, money's got absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God can grow without money. I'm just like, that, that's garbage. I don't believe that. No money, the kingdom of God will not grow, period. If people don't give, the kingdom of God will suffer, period. Because God doesn't mint his own money. He doesn't. God doesn't give money to us. He gives money to us through other people that he's entrusted it to. God, doesn't, God has never showed up in any church that I know of and dropped off a wad of cash. Like, well, it's all from God. We're just trusting in God. I know that. But the, you know the old line, the church has all the money it will ever need, but it's just in our pockets. It's just so true. God gives it to us, and we choose to dispense it or keep it, and that does affect the church. So even talking about money, the, the more money we give, the more ministry will be done, the more gospel outreach will be done, and God will use that to save more people, period. And uh, I'm just very realistic about that, and I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm equally, I'm as, as concerned about people that think we're going to like take over and, and the kingdom of God is going to come in power by political means as I am about people who want to sit on their hands to say God is sovereign, he'll do whatever he wants, and we don't have to do anything. If we don't give of our treasures, and we don't give of our time, and we don't give of our talents, the church will not grow. It won't grow. Because by not giving those things, we're actually disobeying some of the basic calls of the gospel. So just as you think about your short life, just, it's just a blip, right? Wedged between two very long eternities. That little blip, what you do with that will have an impact by God's grace upon generations to come. It just will. And, and don't, don't ever underestimate that. So this is kind of like a moving from teaching to preaching, but it's kind of like a call to respond and learn the lessons of history. That those that were active uh, prevailed, and those that were more active, especially those opposed to the gospel, often beat down the church. So that's the Huguenots. Now we're going to talk about uh, Protestantism spreading outside the borders of Europe. And bear in mind that the early church, so you got kind of the Mediterranean, so you have kind of the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. This is kind of the, the cradle, this is the Mediterranean here. This is like the, the cradle of Christianity. So we, we got our foot in three continents right away, really quick, right out of the gates. First few decades, we're in Europe, we're in Asia, and we're in Africa. Now, the church obviously spreads, we're talking about the church in the broadest possible usage of the word, spreads throughout Europe and becomes the dominant religion of the European nations. It makes some inroads into Asia, and then is kind of pushed back. And it has some inroads in Africa, but is eventually pushed back. So, but 
come the time of the Reformation, it's kind of, if you draw like a jagged line here, Palestine's like the, the, the balancing point. Like it kind of is Christian, isn't, is, isn't, is, isn't. But mostly Christianity is a northern religion and not a southern religion anymore. So come the time of the Reformation, for the most part, Christianity is confined to Europe. I mean, there, yeah, there's Christians in Asia, some in Africa, but for the most part, it's the dominant force in Europe. It's definitely not in South America. It's not North America. It's not there at all. But it's the dominant force in Europe. Now, in 1492, Columbus discovers the New World. Now, think about that. 1492, when did the Reformation happen? 1517. So we're only talking just a, a couple decades before. It's like from us to the late 1980s or something like that, or early 90s. That's not that long ago. So he discovers a new world. So basically, the discovery of the new world by the Europeans and all of the initial events of the conquistadors and that take place in Luther's lifetime. Sometimes we don't make that connection. All of this was taking place during Luther's lifetime. So the, the, the ground is being set for some religious movement to, to wind up in at least South America and eventually in North America. And, of course, one of the reasons why Columbus is able to arrive at the New World is because of the, the kind of ships that they had built, um, the numbers of ships the European countries had, the technology, the navigation technology that they had. So the stage is kind of being set, if you, could, if you could say it that way. Columbus, a Spaniard, uh, he goes under the, the flag of the, the Spanish king and queen, but it is Charles V that inherits their throne as the emperor of Europe. He also inherits the Spanish throne. And we've already brought up Charles V many, many times, right? Because he's the guy duking it out with Luther, uh, he's got this massive political and religious holding. So very, very shortly after the discovery of the New World, Charles is trying to establish his reign and economic prosperity in the Americas. He's also trying to hold back the onslaught, and it's not working very well, of Protestantism in Europe. So it's a bit of a distraction. Nevertheless, uh, Columbus arrives in the New World, and initially, when Columbus met the natives, they, they were friendly relations. And so Columbus at first thought, because he's also a religious man, he's representing a state, but he's also representing a religion, again, because there's no separation between the two, that the holy Roman Catholic faith could probably uh, be spread through the Americas just through charitable acts of love because there was, a, there was a positive response early on. So it's not like he stepped off the boat and started killing people, right? Now, um, pretty much right out of the gates, remember last week we talked about the, pro, uh, the Catholic Counter-Reformation? So what was one of the major dimensions to the Catholic Counter-Reformation that they basically learned from the Protestants? Evangelism. We'll just call it evangelism. Nobody had to evangelize in Europe during the Middle Ages. 
Why would you evangelize? Everybody is a Christian already. There's no Campus Crusade for Christ or the Navigators or various Christian missionary movements that are going out. And everybody's a Christian. To be alive in Europe with white skin means you're a Christian. Period. That's just the way it was. There's no such thing as evangelism. You could go for hundreds of years. Nobody had to evangelize anybody because everybody already was a Christian. <coughs> but the Catholics, because of the Protestants now preaching and converting Catholics to Protestantism, realized, hey, this isn't like a, an assumed faith anymore. We have to actually go win people. So the Catholic Counter-Reformation involves some political reforms. It involves really no uh, theological reforms. But it does also involve like the, the heart. So there's this emphasis, especially by the Jesuits under Ignatius Loyola and Francis Xavier to make sure that your faith was also in here. So remember, we talked about them. They start the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And with that comes missionary zeal in the Roman Catholic Church. So the first missionaries in the Americas are Roman Catholic missionaries, not Protestant missionaries. So we have, between the years 1500 and 1560, as a result of the Protestant Reformation, which triggers the Catholic Counter-Reformation, renewed missionary zeal among the Catholics, and they actually start to go out ahead of the Protestant missionaries to Africa, especially the coast, because that's where they're doing the trade, not inland, but along the coast, around to India and across to the Americas to do missionary work. So we have the Jesuits. We have the Augustinian uh, movement, we have the Dominicans, we have all these different movements within Roman Catholicism that are sending missionaries out to places like Latin, South, uh, Latin America, to the, to the Spanish colonies, to Africa, and to Asia. Right away, debates start to surface about method. So what's the best missionary method? And what do they come up with? And these debates went on for a long time. You could evangelize by love, or you could evangelize by force. And one of the unique dynamics of missionaries in South America in particular was a lack of understanding of culture and language. So you might be evangelizing someone, winning them over, there's stories like this. So these are my two, well, you actually are Latin American, so I'll use you as an example. So these, these are my two, I, I'm Columbus, I step off the boat, there they are, right? So I, I'm with them a little while, I'm, I'm, I'm evangelizing them. And they're offering fruit and vegetables to some idol. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. And I try to explain to them my God. This is a true story. And so they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I baptize them. They're converted. They're Catholics now. And then I leave my horse with them, and I go off to another town, and I come back to find out 
they've killed my horse by feeding it fruit and flowers because they think my horse is the God that I left behind them, that the horse is, the, is my Christian God that I left because they've never seen the horse before. So those are the kind of things where they, they th- we thought we had them, but clearly there was some misunderstanding because they thought I left the horse for them to worship. Don't worship that idol. Worship the horse. They feed the horse the food it shouldn't eat, and the horse is dead when I get back. So there's, there's always weird things taking place where lines of communication are uh, crossing. So most people that are jumping on ships to go to the new world are not particularly pastoral. They're rough, tough sailors, warriors, soldiers, not the kind of guys that this comes easy to. So while there is some attempt to do this, largely they resort to this. Let's just kill them until they surrender to our God. (laughs) So you're familiar, for instance, with the Spanish conquistadors. And bear in mind, too, it was only a couple hundred years before this, maybe 300 years before this, that the final crusade came to an end. And they were still familiar with that. So the crusaders and the Muslims and everyone else, the way you won territory and established your faith was with the point of a sword. So that's, again, the kind of guys you're sending over, lack of communication, all these factors spill over into uh, conversion largely by uh, force. So we have the Spanish, they're sort of at the, the tip of the spear. The Portuguese, you'll notice that in Central and South America, there's only one Spanish-speaking or uh, Portuguese-speaking country, is there not? Just Brazil? Are there any other small ones? Okay. The basic reason for that is th- there was a different mindset between the Spanish and the Portuguese. So the Spanish, when they discovered the Americas, they colonized it. The Portuguese were like, that's not where the money's to be made. The money's to be made in the shipping trades. So the Portuguese really dom- dominated the, the trade part. They were the, the movers of goods. The Spanish really were the ones that went inland to conquer and establish territories. So we have the Spanish there, the Portuguese are there in part. And then over the next several years, we have the English coming, we have the French coming, we have the Dutch coming. And all of these countries are uh, largely, not not every one of them, certainly not uh, uh, England so much, but they're all mostly Roman Catholic. So again, mostly Roman Catholic missionaries, friars, and monks uh, head out. So 50 years, get this, 50 years, and we're not talking about landscape like this. Like this probably was all treed and you know, there's cougars around and bears. And within 50 years, the Spanish conquistadors with their swords have plundered everything from California right down to the tip of South America. So they've just ransacked everything in like 50 years. Like 50 years is a long time now, but we're talking like heavy underbrush. We're talking limited technology. You're talking about people coming from Europe by boats. How many do you fit in a boat? I don't know, but it really is a, a very violent and brutal period of time. But what it leads to 
from California right down to the southern tip is Spanish domination. And, you know, that would kind of go back and forth a little bit. Obviously, Brazil uh, went to the Portuguese and whatnot. But to a large degree, again, what happened 500 years ago, over 50 years, still affects the culture of all the Latin countries today. Because that's all still Spanish-speaking, right? So again, hey, folks, the decisions we make today can have a lasting influence for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years on all levels. Let's not kid ourselves about that. Let's learn from history, positively or negatively. All of these events, from Columbus discovering it to the conquistadors conquering it all, all of that takes place within Luther's lifetime. It's happening at the same time. So all the stuff we've been talking about up till now, we're thinking Europe, that's what's been going on uh, in the New World. Roman Catholic groups desirous to spread the Roman Catholic faith they head out, so they obviously head to the New World. Remember that movie years ago, The Jesuits? Did you ever see that? Yeah. It's kind of a brutal movie, right? About Jesuit missionaries in the Latin Americas during this general era. So we have them going to the New World, but they are also going to India, Japan, and trying to get a foothold into China during this period of time. So it's not just, hey, let's, let's head to the New World. They're also trying to, I, I would say, for the Catholic missionaries, out of a proper heart, a desire to spread their convictions, going out and doing evangelism. But of course, again, they're surrounded by soldiers who maybe aren't necessarily doing the w- things the way they should. Many of these guys, for many of these early missionaries, they're, they're virtually all males, this was, like a, a, this was a huge thing. It's like a big deal. I think most of us would probably be terrified to take like a three-day trip into like northern, northern, northern Ontario without satellite phone and the latest and the greatest cool backpack from some high-priced store that sells such items and gizmos and trinkets and special tents and weaponry and on and on. And, you know... Uh, uh, a phone that you can call a helicopter, a bush pilot who's there in like 10 minutes. Um, you know, like the survivor man kind of stuff. I mean, that's like nothing compared to what a lot of these guys are doing. So these guys are leaving family and friends and comfort and language behind. They're getting on disgusting ships and they're heading to faraway locations. Sometimes like 50, 60% of them are dead before they even get there, just toss overboard, right? So this is like a big deal. Now, ultimately, as I mentioned in Latin America's brutality became the, the, the choice path to conversion, and thousands of temples and thousands of idols are destroyed, and basically people are, are converted at the point of a sword. And how do you know a person is converted? Roman Catholic thinking, didn't learn from the Reformation, how do you know? What's the ca- baptism? So the Catholic Catechism today says if you're baptized, you're justified. I read that to you in the first class, I believe. And likewise, these people could have been more clueless than European Christians at the time of the Reformation, but we got them in the water. So they'd be baptizing sometimes thousands of people in one day. I think one year they baptized like a million Mexicans. And whether these people ever heard a word of the gospel or not, 
who knows? But they're baptized, they're Christians now. And depending on the group, of course, there's different theological brands of Catholics, depending whether you're Dominican or whatnot. Some of these groups were allowed to retain elements of their former religion. And that's still the case today. So you go to some Latin American countries, and there's like animism or like elements of paganism very much woven into their Roman Catholic faith, and nobody really cares about that. That's totally fine. So it's, it's not as pure as maybe the old school European stuff. Nevertheless, during this period of time, there are several Catholic missionaries that are like, this is terrible. You can't just be killing people and wiping people out. This is wrong. This is not the way of Jesus. And so they're complaining back to Europe. And in 1542, Charles V establishes what are known as the Laws of the Indies. The Laws of the Indies. And this basically is, is a law that offers partial protection to Indians from brutality and recognizes that they are, in fact, human beings. So that helps stem some of the brutality. Obviously, by the time you ask, send the ship back, everything happens, send the ship back, get the law, spread the word. You're talking about several years before it's really taken into effect, and many people would just be like, we'll do whatever we want. But there is some attempt. That same year, 1542, so the law of the Indies is established to protect some of the native peoples in the Americas. That same year, the Jesuit Francis Xavier, one of the two guys that, for, that founded the Jesuits, so one of three guys that founded the Jesuits, he, uh, he's already headed off. So he, he's in India now. And um, so we have Latin America being evangelized. We have India. Gwe, that's a particular state or territory in India. That, he, he, he winds up there. And he founds a church, and it's quite successful, actually. He baptizes thousands of people to the Roman Catholic faith. Seven years later, he's in Japan. So 1549, he's in Japan doing evangelism. And he has some uh, success there. And then he sets his sight on China. Now, China was very closed not just to religion, but it was close to foreigners. That's why if you go to countries like China, it's amazing how truly Asian it is. I mean, I was even struck by that a couple times when I was in China, but you go to, I mean, I've been to Northern Africa. I've been to Northern and Western Europe. I've been to South America. I've been to the Caribbean. I've been all over North America. And there's always ethnic diversity. So there's like a main ethnic group, but then there's all, like in this room tonight, we have some ethnic diversity. But in China, like, everybody looks Chinese. Like, where are the black Chinese? Where are the white Chinese? They're never allowed in. So there were never, like, black Chinese groups or white Chinese groups or Indian Chinese groups. It wasn't the case. They're very, they look very Chinese, right? Stereotypically Chinese. So this is kind of closed. And so this is 1552. He tries to get into China, but he actually dies of illness on the voyage. So... Basically, there's not much of a foothold in China. So that is 
a, a snapshot of the Roman Catholic missionary efforts that's happening at the time of the Reformation. So now we have the Protestants realizing they need to do missionary work as well. Now we're just going to focus on one branch of that. We're going to focus on the influence of Protestant missions, if you want to call it that, into the Americas. So we're introduced, we're introduced to the Puritans. Now the Puritans were, in fact, part of the Church of England. So don't think of them as a separate group at this point. So the Church of England, discussed that last week, that is the state Church of England now. And we could just describe it as kind of a hybrid, from our vantage point, of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, like European, mainland European Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. That's kind of like the Church of England. So they retain a lot of it, and they make some changes. And again, unlike European branches of Protestantism that largely arose because of conviction or issues of authority of Scripture, the Church of England started off on a different foot. They started as a result of the desire for their king, Henry, to split away and gain his own power from the Roman Catholic Church. So it wasn't started by conviction, and it took a little longer to kind of catch on because it wasn't a conviction-based movement. But within the Church of England, there were people called Puritans. They wanted a pure form of religion. Persecuted under Bloody Mary, take off to cross the channel to the Netherlands in particular, have greater exposure to the convictional side of Protestantism. Mary dies, Elizabeth takes the throne, they come back. So they're, they're more pleased when they left, but they're still not pleased with the political dynamics and dimensions of the Church of England. So they uh, try to bring about reforms, and they get into government and um, you know, return to their lands and all that kind of stuff. And um, over the next several years, because they are purists, they come to blows with the hierarchy, the more run-of-the-mill Christians from the Church of England. And there's tension, and there's problems, and there's difficulties, and all that kind of thing. And the doors are starting to open for people to go to the Americas. So in 1607... Jamestown, Virginia, the first successful uh, English colony in the Americas is founded. 1620, not, not really free religiously, but in 1620, 400 Puritans get on a boat and are ready to head off to the Americas. Now, the reasons for that are multiple. But let me just draw your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse uh, 7, verse 10. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. It says, um, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. 
as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. So as they're standing on the dock, ready to get on the ship to head over to the new world, to found this new colony, the pastor comes and this is the passage he preaches from to these people. So the last sermon they hear from a Puritan English minister is you are the new Israel. The Americas are, are, are basically the land of Canaan to you and you need to go there and there you're going to be free to practice your faith. Now that sounds very American to me. That sounds very Bob Duco to me. Right? Uh, and again, it's interesting how a sermon which reflected a mindset 500 years ago continues to affect and shape the United States of America today. It's just fascinating to me how, you know, we think every generation just radically changing. Really, we're not. We're just kind of inheriting what's come before us and adding to it or adapting it a bit. But what people say and preach, they don't just affect one generation. They affect multiple generations to come. That's why we need to be careful what we say and preach, because we're not just making decisions for the people that are standing in front of us. We're making decisions for generations to come. So this sermon is preached. So they're, they're on the boat now, and they, they head over. And you know they land in Massachusetts in December, a great time of the year, right, to land in the new world and, uh, of 1620. And, of course, you know, if you've read or seen movies about this, there's, like, death and starvation. It's just, it's just terrible. Like, it's just a terrible experience. But they are uh, convinced that this is God's will for them. And uh, they'd been stymied under uh, British law for a, a long time. They didn't really have freedom to have like their own church. They were all kind of like, you, there wasn't like a, pur a Puritan denomination in the Church of England. The Puritans were kind of a reformed movement within the Church of England. So you could have a Church of England minister that was more mainstream or one that was more Puritan, or you could have a particular church that was more Puritan in its feel and one that's more mainstream, but it's all one church. But now, in the new world, they can um, do their own thing. So um, let me just talk to you a little bit more about England and what was going on in England, and then we'll circle back around to uh, some of the events that transpired after they touched down in, uh, in the new world. So in England, the I'm not going to I'm not necessarily going to go so far as to call it persecution, but the turmoil, the difficulties, the challenges, the pushback that the Puritans were experiencing from the Church of England eventually led them to form other denominations. After 1660, so 40 years later, they're forming other denominations like what would become known as the Congregationalists and even some Presbyterian groups. Now, I think this is an interesting observation as well, that when the Puritans finally got their freedom and were able to form breakaway groups, they immediately dispensed with all authority structures in the church. Now, they, they, they did what every Christian group does when they want to do something new or different. They go and find verses to back it up. 
But you can't deny the cultural influence of that. That the English church broke away from the Roman church largely because of issues of governance. The, French, the, the English church retained, uh, did I say England twice or did I say Rome? Did I say it right? Okay, so English church breaks away from Rome largely due to influences of government and control. Now the English church, decades later, is in turmoil. And the Puritans are like, we're sick and tired of clergymen. We're sick and tired of pastors and ministers telling us what to do. And so they form congregational churches. And the, the way a congregational church operates is, uh, okay, so using, let's say, the, the home. So you have mom and dad, and you have children. So typically in a home, there, it's, it's a unit, and you have a hierarchy. So mom and dad are above the kids. And dad is slightly above the mom. But everybody's a human. Everybody eats the same food. Everybody breathes the same air. Everybody contributes to the life of the family. Everyone's equally human, but there's a functional hierarchy. And then when these little guys get big, they hive off and they form you know, their own families and so forth. So we have functional inequality, but we have equality of personhood. And the Presbyterian or Episcopal model of um, the church, let's do this, or Episcopal model, patterns the church basically off of this. So you come to church, everybody's equal, everybody's loved, everybody participates equally in the life of the church, everybody has equal access to the food that the church dispenses and all that, but the pastors and elders are functionally in charge of the church. So that's the Presbyterian model, right? Now that can be abused, of course, and it was being abused. So the Congregationalists, they got rid of this. And the way they structured their church, it's like having a church, I don't know, full of teenagers? Or moms or dads or you know, whatever it might be. Let's say everybody in your home is exactly the same. Nobody's in charge. Everybody has equal say in the life of the church. So congregational churches... And many Baptist churches today are so congregation-led. Everybody is equal. So if this person was saved 50 years ago, and this person was saved one minute ago, they have equal say in the life of the church, regardless of knowledge, regardless of background. But what generally happens in congregationalism is it's just human nature. Somebody rises to the surface as a result of the force of their personality. Could be a man, could be a woman, could be a family group, could be a clan, could be a cluster of people could be the person that gives the most money. And generally what happens in congregationalism is there's the true power brokers and then there's the, the hired face of the organization. So you have a minister. So in the, in the, in the um, Presbyterian model, let's say this is the minister and these are the congregants, right? So he's He's authoritatively in charge of the church. In congregationalism, what actually happens over time is this. He is their employee, right? And it's because 
he, he, he must be subservient to the will of the whole. And that's just a, like an impossible structure to live within because if you have a hundred different views and you're, you're kind of like everybody's employee, you're, you just become uh, disempowered to even make decisions. So there's, there's lots of instances in the new world of uh, parishes that couldn't find ministers because they were just terribly abusive to them, voting them in and out, casting them out, throwing them out. There's no, obviously there's no like pension, there's no policeman you can go to. Just the, a lot of the early Puritan preachers were, I, I would just say, abused by their congregations because there was such a hyper emphasis on congregationalism, and like, and to the point the, the ministers really became like everybody's doormat. But that's congregationalism. So the point I'm making is you shouldn't determine the structure of your church based upon political considerations or what's popular at the time. The Presbyterian Episcopal model can be absolutely abused. The Congregationalist model can be absolutely abused. You can abuse any system if there's sin in the mix. You've got to look at what is, what's the design that Scripture has established. And I would just say that Scripture has established for the church the same design that it has established for the family in that there's like ontological equality. We're all equal in our being, but there's functional inequality. We actually see that reflected in the Trinity where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ontologically absolutely 100% God, but the Father has superior, superior, functional superiority over the Son. The Son does the will of the Father, and the Son has functional superiority over the Spirit. And the Spirit is sent by the Son and is the will of the Son. So we have within God, who is not three persons, but, or, or not three different people, but three persons in one essence, we have functional inequality, but ontological equality. And that, in a very rough way, is reflected in the life of the family and the church. But again, just because I'm a married man with children and I'm the head of, head of my home doesn't, doesn't mean that I'm better at it, and it doesn't mean that I can't abuse it. So the Bible puts checks and balances on all of those things. But the point is, is the early Puritans, for the most part, like the majority, I would say, went with a congregational model, and the, um, the minority went with a Presbyterian or Episcopal model. When I say Presbyterian, don't think the denomination that bears that name. Think of the model that we, so we would be a Presbyterian church at harvest when it comes to church governance our model would be a Presbyterian model and that the presbyters or the episkopos, these are words used of eldership in the New Testament, govern the church. So the, the, um, the church in England separates. We have pre- congregationalists, we have um, Presbyterians. For the most part, they are Calvinistic in their theology. So well, I think we talked about Calvinism. Yeah, we went through his... his uh, um, what do you call them? Institutes. Institutes. So Calvin, Calvinism, just to review, speaks of man's total depravity, uh, total inability to choose God, to select God, to surrender to God. This is the fancy term for it is depravity. That's an, an emphasis. And that we're elected without conditions. Okay. So without condition, so it's not like God picks the cream of the crop. He, he actually goes after some losers. 
um, that the atonement is specific. So the, the purpose of the atonement, while it is sufficient for all, the purpose of Christ dying on the cross, he, he wouldn't have had to stay on the cross for another hour to catch another million. But the purpose of the atonement was specific to apply it to the elect. So therefore, not, not everybody's sins are atoned for. And not any of them, not all of them will be atoned for. This, this basically puts a check and balance upon universalism. So there's, there's some Christians throughout history that have thought, well, because Jesus died for everybody, literally paid everybody's sins, that come the judgment scene, all of humanity will enter into heaven because their sins actually were paid for on the cross. So it's an interesting question, were your sins, did Christ actually pay for every single human being's sins on the cross? If he did, then nobody's going to be in hell. But if you think of the atonement less in terms of who he's paying for in the moment or who he's not paying for in the moment, and you think of it in terms of sufficiency or efficiency, then I think you bring a lot of clarity. So the way I like to talk about it is that the atonement of Christ is sufficient for all, but it's only efficient. The purpose of it was only to effectively apply it to those who um, would ultimately be uh, elect. And then uh, Calvinism teaches that God's grace, now we're not talking about general grace because people resist, gen, resist general grace all the time, but like if the spirit comes on someone and latches hold of them and the gospel is there and he communicates truth, that, that person, the, the spirit of God is so powerful, that person will not be able to resist God's grace. They, if, if, if God's like, this guy's elect, this guy is going to get saved without question. And then um, they also teach uh, perseverance, perse, perseverance. So perseverance means if a person actually is justified in the eyes of God, of course, we may misunderstand it or you may not know if someone else is, but in the minds of God, then that, justif that justification will never be removed because of a lack of merit or apostasy. So that's Calvinism. If you went down this list, pretty much every Puritan would have checked off those four. There were many that debated this one. This one. They had different views on this. And um, so in their, in their theology of salvation, so think of the Puritans. So their, their theology of salvation... is Calvinist. But, by way of review, the Lutherans really reformed the doctrine of what? Well, two doctrines. Yeah, so salvation, of which justification is a part. So how does a person get saved? And in order to do that, they had to reform what other doctrine? Um, that's tied to salvation. But the broader one, the issue of authority, right? So is it the Pope and the traditions of the church? Is it the Bible? So he's like, no, it's Bible, right? So we got sola scriptura and then sola gratia, sola fide. Those are all under the umbrella of salvation. So Luther, the Lutherans reform primarily doctrine of salvation and doctrine of where your authority comes from. The 
uh, Calvinists, really, while it has massive implications for salvation as well, what they're actually reforming in this is what doctrine? God. So they are presenting us with a, an, a, the highest view of God's sovereignty of all really historical denominations, period. So sovereignty of God, that's like a huge thing for the Calvinist. Okay, what do the Anabaptists contribute to the Reformation? Again, there's some overlap, but what, what are they primarily known for? What did they reform in the church? Okay. Yeah. Holiness. Personal relationship with God living a sanctified life, following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, casting off uh, the things of this world, embracing the life of Christ. Here's what I would say about the Puritans. The Puritans had Calvinistic theology and an Anabaptist view of the Christian life. So this is, this is what makes them unique and special and it's, it's really from them that so many modern, true evangelical denominations come. Getting your, getting your uh, view of salvation right and getting your God is sovereign, but then actually living it out. And, and this is why, again, looking, for, looking back at what was going on then and looking at those churches today, you're going to have a greater emphasis, and this is a blanket statement, I think it's absolutely true, a greater emphasis on lifestyle in any Anabaptist church today compared to Reformed churches and Lutheran churches. So for a guy like me that comes out of a church that emphasizes the interior life, sometimes when I first started being exposed to Lutherans or Reformers, I'd like gasp. Like, you guys smoke cigarettes? You drink alcohol? You swear? You like, what the heck's wrong with you guys? Because they, they were more driven by theology, but it didn't necessarily affect day-to-day life as much as it affects some of these other groups. And uh, the Puritans, of course, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but they, they became a little bit extreme in this regard. Uh, a few more things. They pushed for uh, church autonomy, which was a thought foreign to Anglicans. And they began to splinter up in the late 1600s to the point that there were some real weirdos, frankly. Um, with some real strange, whacked-out views. Because what, what you, again, you have the imbalance, right? You have churches that are governed very tightly by bishops and synods and archbishops and popes and cardinals. And, and the product, everybody looks the same. But as soon as you're over here and you're like, ah, it's just you and Jesus. Just whatever you want to believe, you believe. And if you guys want to form a group, that's fine. You form a group. Then you got some strange people, right? I mean, let's be honest. Strange people are attracted to church. And um, uh, look at this guy. Why don't you just stand up? Look. Just as an example, just stand up for a second. Just stand up, yeah. Just stand up, yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah. this man calls himself an elder. Like, just, like, we're talking like bottom of the bucket. So we have. Um, some very strange views and there's so much political upheaval going on in the country. There's all these upstart groups, people like with weird prophecies and weird millennial views and all kinds of stuff going on. 
And many of their numbers are leaving for the New World. So this is like late 1600s, but back 1620, many of them are leaving for the New World. So like the cream of the crop, right? They're leaving for the New World. They're, the, they're really zealous. They're really committed. They're, they're, they're gone. Some key beliefs, though, that all Puritans would hold in common. Uh, glory of God above all things. Glory of God. Glory of God. It's about the glory of God, not the glory of man. Now, that's just a basic biblical doctrine. You hear, you hear that in our church, right? You say, well, we, we got it from the Bible. We did. But perhaps we got the desire to emphasize it from the Bible, from the Puritans, whether we know it or not. Because there's a lot of things you can emphasize in the Bible, but we emphasize that. That the authority of Scripture was important and so important that they were prepared to police it in matters of everyday life. So if you grew up in a church where you felt like your life was being policed, try being a Puritan, especially in the New World and you know, the early to mid-1600s. So it was mandatory to go to church, especially in the Massachusetts Bay uh, Company. So if you didn't go to church, didn't have the proper view of baptism, uh, didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, like you'd literally be run out of town or killed. So here's the problem with that, right? In a desire to bring reformation, on a functional level, they start enforcing faith in the same way and to the same degree that caused the reformation in the first place. And that's what we need to be careful of. Well, we got it right, so there's a justification for that, right? Because it's easier to justify enforcing things on culture or politics when you have it right. Well, how many of us here think we're wrong? You don't. Nobody thinks they're wrong. That's why you believe what you do. Like I, there, People say, well, you think you're always right. Well, of course I think I'm always right. <laughs> or I, I wouldn't believe what I believe. I am literally always right. <laughs> um, and if I wasn't, I would change it, and then I'd still be always right. <laughs> well, let's just be honest. We all think that way. And that can be dangerous because that justifies behavior that may not actually be right in the eyes of the true authority of what is right and wrong, which is God. So Christ is at the center of public life and private life. So this is, this, by the way, this, is, this becomes so ingrained in like American culture early on, before the War of Independence and all that kind of stuff, Declaration of Independence and the, uh, the Constitution, all that kind of stuff. This becomes so ingrained that Christ is the center of public-private life from a Protestant perspective that you hear many Christian Americans today say, well, we, we have to believe, whatever it might be, this to be true or wrong because that's what the founding fathers believed. I'm thinking, I don't really care what someone believed 200 years ago. It's got nothing to do with my life in the here and now. So I don't, I don't think that's a good argument. I don't think it's a good argument to say we have to believe this because someone that wore a similar badge that we're wearing today believed that 500 years ago or 200 years ago or 100 years ago or last week. Because so what's your authority? Like, why don't you just appeal to the authority of Scripture instead of appealing to the authority of someone that lived a long time ago? But that's so ingrained. That's why in that mindset, that makes sense. Well, th these people founded this country for that reason. That's what they stood for. That's what they died for. So 
Why wouldn't we still champion that? Why wouldn't we still uphold that? And again, it, it, it works really well if whatever they believe is what you believe and is what the Bible believe and you win, it gives you leverage to get your way. It works really well. But what happens if it doesn't work well? So I show up in Saudi Arabia, I'm a missionary. And I'm trying to convince people to follow Jesus Christ. Well, that's not what our founding fathers of Saudi Arabia believe. They fought for Islam, you know, or whatever it might have been. Then, okay, you're right. So how can someone with that mindset, let's say in the United States or even in Canada, champion that, but then do missionary work at all in countries that don't have founding fathers that believe the same thing, that the argument just fails? And it's just not a good argument anyway, because again, it, it boils down to not who started the business, but uh, what's the authority behind it. Uh, Presbyterians denied largely the divine right of kings, which was a notion that had ruled Europe and was right in the fabric of the church for centuries. So for centuries, how many times was that used? John's the king of France or England. He is God's man. So you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. doesn't matter what we think, what the Bible says. It matters what John says. Because John was point, appointed by Christ himself to be our king. You know, he may have 300 wives and be killing people and chopping people up every day, but he's God's man. So we have the, the render to Caesar thing in the Bible has checks and balances on it. We need to understand that. It has checks and balances on it. Just like the admonition to appoint pastor elders to oversee churches has checks and balances on it. Just like husbands leading their homes has checks and balances on it. It's not a free-for-all. It's not a free-for-all in the home. It's not a free-for-all in the church. It's not a free-for-all in the state. God appoints leaders, but there's checks and balances on leaders because leaders can be abusive. So that's out. Demon possession was affirmed and responded to with exorcism. So Puritan preachers were known to exorcise demons from people. And uh, these beliefs spilled over into some of the mass hysteria we see, at, for instance, at the Salem witch trials, where demonism became like a dominant uh, belief among some churches, some preachers, like that's their hobby horse. They're just preaching. It's like there's a demon around every corner, under every table, you know, in every food item, and they had like all kinds of strange views. And again, because there's no one man calling the shots, right? It's a free-for-all. So they had views that like when a witch looked at you, there, there was like almost like subatomic particles that came out of their eyes into you, and you had to brew up things using like cat urine and drink it, and it would push these particles out, and then uh, it, they would go back to the witch. And so if you're drinking these things and, you know, Deb's reacting in a certain way, all the particles are going back to her. So she's the witch. Get her. Let's burn her. Like just all kinds of weird and whacked out views to the point that I'm sure you all heard about it. And uh, what are the years here? Um, 1692 to 1693, we have, you know, all of these public burnings at the stake for people who later were discovered to be totally innocent of it, right? And that's the Puritans, right? So it's, it's good intention gone awry. Being on mission with God, personal commitment to Christ, traditional family roles. So husband's head of the home, husband and wife are in love, they're a spiritual unit, they raise the children. 
One interesting thing about the Puritans is they, they felt that children should be under the authority of and pretty tight with their parents when they're kids. But come the time of adolescence, they should really start to be freed up. So this is where you have like the younger marriage, um, uh, a younger age for just being responsible for your own financial well-being and all that. So nowadays, like, oh, you're, you're 29, I suppose you can leave the house, right? <laughs> yes, I'll let you have your own bank account. Um, but that age would have been like cut in half. So teenagers really came, came out from under the, the immediate supervision of their uh, uh, parents and started their families and started their careers and trades and all that much, much earlier than they even do in our generation. You know, no offense to those of you that still have 30-year-olds living in your basement. Um, and then we have uh, an emphasis on prophecy and millennial theology and a lot more interest in the end times, which essentially, that's like end time theology, that's, that's still not on the radar of the Roman Catholic Church. Like they don't care about stuff like that. Jesus is coming back someday. Who cares when? But Puritans like to cross the T's and dot the I's. And um, those of you that were alive and well in an evangelical church, in the late 60s, probably through to the late 80s, know that that was like a hot button. And like it was so technical. I grew up in a church where, like out of all the things you could post on the wall, there's the podium, and behind the podium, I remember all my life, there's this thing that looked like a big shoe. And there's like verse references like all over it. And there's like the path to heaven, the path to hell, and this is the Antichrist, and this is the two witnesses, and... This is the tribulation. Here's how long it's going to be, and here's the millennium. And that was like, if you don't believe that, you don't like memorize that very confusing diagram, like you're just not even a Christian. Um, so a little reminder, the one thing that makes you a Christian out of several things is that you must believe in the second coming of Christ. That's where we have to be united. You don't have to be a millennialist, a pre-tribber, a post-tribber, post-tribulational, dispensational, pre-millennial, you know, on and on and on, right? And um, it's okay to have views on those. I am a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, dispensationalist. But most of you don't even know what that is. So, um, and I'm not going to take a bullet for that, for sure not. But I will take a bullet for the second coming. Nevertheless, a lot of that flowed from Puritan theology. So back to um, 1620. Puritans arrive. Really, they're known as the pilgrims because they're Puritans that have gone on a pilgrimage to the New World. So Puritan pilgrim, we kind of use the word interchangeably now, but really the Puritans that stayed behind in England aren't pilgrims. The Puritans that touched down in what is now the eastern coast of the U.S., those are pilgrims. And... Um, they, they formed like the, the second successful English colony. So Jamestown, Virginia is formed in 1607. Very difficult. Uh, but 10 years in, they have succeeded in forming the Massachusetts, I always butcher that word, uh, Bay Company. And by now they, they've drawn like 25,000 Puritans from England that are part of this. Now this is kind of interesting. In New England... Someone's writing out the charter, and they, for whatever reason, omit a critical little aspect of the charter, which differs from all the other colonies that are springing up, up and down the coast. 
The part that they omit is that the company, so think of it this way, they're settlements, but they're, they're companies of the English crown, which are operating in the new world in territory that England has claimed. And as companies, they are calling people over to settle, to involve themselves in commerce, because this is a, an economic, part of the economic trade system of England, for example. So it's just a little different way of thinking. You think of them, all these little towns are just kind of on their own. No, they're kind of like employees of the crown. But in New England, someone forgot or omitted a clause that basically said um, that this, com uh, this company is, must have its, I know what it was, this company had to have its headquarters in England. Now, because this company, the Massachusetts Bay Company, was in New England, and New England didn't require that its head offices were in England, it was therefore not technically a company of the crown. So they're like, we found this glitch. We can start our own church, because we are not subservient to the English crown. We can do what we want. So they formed a uh, virtually like a theocracy. And again, pendulum goes back. So this is where, in this particular area, these 25,000 or so, they're living in this area working for this company, which is not really an English company. They start their own church called the Old Meeting House. They police people's bedrooms. They police people's economics. They police people's religious life. And it really is like, they actually... Uh, I'm not sure if this was the place. I think they called it like the New Zion. So they, they, they're taking that second Samuel passage you read earlier, like, we've arrived. It actually came to fruition. We can understand that this didn't go over very well. Uh, and uh, over time, they, as they blended civil and ecclesiastical government and made religion mandatory, the English reacted and the governor uh, comes in, and he seizes their worship house. He enforces English rule. He makes their worship house a Church of England church, and basically their autonomy's done. So they're kind of back in line with the other colonies up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, now, the American dream. The American dream seems so normal and so natural, which we adopt north of the American border, right? And there's really a lot of truth to it, that you can go from a pauper to a billionaire in one lifetime. You can go from uh, a single parent home or foster system home where you have nothing to your name, there's access to education like never before, Right personality, right opportunities. You work your up, and you got these multi-million-dollar executives, and that that literally go from nothing to pretty famous. And um, that like never took place in any culture that we know of throughout human history. This is that was just impossible. But to a large degree, the American dream stems from the mindset of the Puritans that were functioning in, for the first time in generations in a, in a religious 
religiously tolerant environment. So unlike in England, where Church of England law was enforced, it really wasn't enforced on the same level, unless you kind of get out of hand, like the guys that tried to set up their own little Zion. It really wasn't enforced. You, you, you had religious freedom. And you could work hard, and you could benefit from that. So some money's going back across the ocean, but you, you could benefit from that. So these people coming over built huge businesses in spite of the hazards over the, over the course of just s- uh, several years. And then other European groups arrived and discovered the same thing. So the Quakers came over. They were like a break-off group from the Church of England. They largely settled in Pennsylvania and found their foothold there. Roman Catholics came over. They settled in Maryland and found their foothold there. That's why Maryland's largely Roman Catholic to today. The Dutch Reform came over. They settled in New York. So these different people groups with either Catholic or Protestant beliefs came over, and I was like, wow, we can actually live out our faith but there's toleration, and the opportunities are endless, like free land, access to resources, there's not a lot of people around. So this really does, all of these things give rise to the American dream. And that's why the, the United States still has a very, and, and similar countries like Canada, have a very simil- different feel and mindset to them than even many European countries today who've just never experienced something like that. They've kind of slid into it, right? They envy it, but they've slid into it. Uh, Second from last, I want to talk about denominationalism. This is really important. So prior to the Reformation, what denominations do you have access to? You can be a Roman Catholic if you're born in the right place, or you can be Eastern Orthodox. But those are not called denominations. That's a a, a word that crops up uh, in the New World. So you didn't have a lot of options. But denominationalism today, so we talk about denominations. What would you say, just throw out some words like impression words, feeling words. What are people's general feelings or impressions of denominations? Okay, adversarial. What else? Fracture. Confusing. Confusing, yeah. Competitive. Okay, competitive. Give me a couple more. Divisive. Divisive. Exclusive. Okay, good. Exclusive will in there. Sorry? Uh, abundant, yeah. How many of these words would you say would fall into the category of positive? None of them, right? So they're all kind of negative. They're all associated with sectarianism. Interestingly, denominations were started for the exact opposite reason. Denominations were started to combat sectarianism. So in the New World, you got this guy with his church over there, and 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 this guy with his church over there. Sectarianism. So in order to bring about unity in the body of Christ, the early inventors of denominationalism said, hey, that's, that's not cool. Let's, let's get at least groups of Christians together and denominate them. These are, they have, let's say this group here has a similar view on 
how a church should be organized and how Christians should worship. So we will take all these ragtag groups, which are, and admittedly were sectarian, and say, okay, let's, let's form a denomination. Let's form a denomination. Let's form a denomination. Let's form a denomination. So denominationalism was thought of as a very positive thing. And the idea would be that they would recognize that they were one church, but that because of differences of opinion and organization and worship, they would denominate them out. Now, I just find it interesting that not understanding that and responding to cultural baggage, we're like running around apologizing for being denominations as Christians. We're non-denominational. Oh, so you're sectarian. <laughs> no, we're, we just have a lot of personal freedom. Oh, so you're a sectarian. But do you see the idea? Where denominations, don't, that doesn't need to be a negative term. Now, technically, we are a non-denominational church at this church. But that can also be perceived, and by some, even in the city of Windsor, they've said this to me, that can be perceived as sectarian. So the, 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 it, it's easy to use the tagline non-denominational as a cool little marketing gimmick when you're trying to dr draw people in and think, hey, we got a lot of freedom here. We kind of, you know, we're autonomous. We're, we run our own show. You should come. Or we don't carry the traditional baggage of other churches. Oh, so you're sectarian. Right? So it can, be, it can be positive or negative, but my point is, uh, well, we've got to use the word carefully. But my point uh, historically is that as a result of sectarianism, the Congregationalists banded together, the Presbyterians banded together, the Baptists banded together, and so forth and so on, to combat, at least on some level, a measure of sectarianism under, uh, obviously, the global church. So finally, we have the pilgrims, and then we'll go into some Q&A. Uh, the pilgrims' attitude toward God, state, religious life, left a permanent mark in the American and the Americas culture. It spilled over into the War of Independence. Um, so who was the enemy in the War of Independence? England, right? So the great-great-great-great-grandchildren of some that stepped off the boat in 1620, 1607, were like pushing back, trying to in many ways reclaim a lot of the stuff that they, um, the Declaration, is it called the War of Independence or is it just the Declaration American of Independence? American Revolution. Well, it depends. It depends. It depends on who you're talking to. Okay, well, why don't... Okay. So what, should, what do we want to go with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my, on my dad's mom's side, they, they came over like in the early 1600s. Some, some think they might have been the Mayflower. I don't know. But um, they came over early on and, and then uh, fled to New Brunswick and that because they were... United Empire loyalists and then kind of made their way along the, 
the southern coast of Ontario down into like the St. Thomas Chatham area. So there's just like one line did that. Others came over later. But that that war really, um, you know, in the late 1700s, is a result of of you know the last 100 150 years of conflict and this heightened sense of autonomy, autonomy in churches, autonomy of government, autonomy in the home, and all that kind of thing, which again was. It, it just couldn't ha have happened in many countries like that. Um, okay, so I'm going to end there. And we've gone then from, from the beginning of the Reformation, a few of the events leading up to it, right up to how it impacted the foundation of the Americas from from the Roman Catholics and from the Protestants. So by the way, the Roman Catholics won the South. Right? So until even more recently, like in the last 100 years or so, Catholicism has and continues to be the dominant religion of the, the South Americas, South American countries. And of course, now we have Protestant groups that have, that have made some inroads there. But it's still very much marked by that. Just like, again, up to 50 years ago, France, Quebec, very Catholic. The rest of Canada, more mixed, Protestant, Catholic. Generations being affected by who showed up first, who drove their, their flag in the ground first, who planted the first church, you know, who got their foot in the door. Just really interesting to think about those influences. And I have, no, I have no reason then to think that it's any different today. That if secularism wins, if atheism wins, or Islam wins, or evangelicalism wins territory today that that won't have implications for the future all right so let's let's just chit chat a little bit so i'm curious foundational question because the the it's been a history class but really it's been a class primarily about the gospel how has this study clarified or muddied your view of the gospel i just want you to be able to speak openly about that for the rest of, in a loud enough voice the rest of the class can hear Still very confused about that. <laughs> yeah. Since no one else is. Um, coming from a Roman Catholic background, there was a couple of things that stood out for me. Um, one of them that really bothers me is, is the decisions that were made relying on man, the Pope, through the years rather than um, the Bible. And particularly the indulgences. Yeah. Even though I, I knew that word, okay. it, it sort of was raised with it, yeah. I never really put it together. Interesting. Yeah. Good. Thanks for that. Are you able to hear in the back? More or less? Yeah. For me, it's um, the concept of final authority. Um, that that brings a lot of clarity to even discussions you have today, or if there's things that you can't necessarily, not that you can't defend them, but you haven't done the research to defend them, you can say, well, ultimately, um, I know what the final authority is, and if that's what, if this is what the Bible says about it, then that's what I subscribe to. Yeah, yeah. And I think that makes a lot of it makes a lot of conversations a bit easier, mm -hmm. because somebody can cherry pick script scripture from anywhere and force you to defend it. Yeah. And 
it, it's created a, a response that can look, I can't debate it with you, but I believe the final authority is mm -hmm. right here. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, it's helped me for clarity that way. Okay. And that all the groups, that's ultimately what they're, what a lot of their disputes were based on, is where was final authority, especially between Catholicism and, and being Protestant, is where is final authority. And that also makes the conversation with Catholics much easier, because that's the question you can ask. Like, where is the final authority, which allows that discussion to open up a bit. Yeah, good. I just and, want to add. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I want to add about uh, communion to that. That's uh, because I, I really liked um, knowing and hearing that the final authority is the Bible because that's something that I can really hang on to and believe. But I guess the bottom line is not everything is very clear yeah. or clarified. Some yeah. things you have to yeah. read, you know, the different uh, verses and come yeah. to your own, like communion. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's why I find the concentric circle model pretty helpful. So you have core, then you have your distinctives, which make fellowship difficult if you don't agree. So the middle circle is, these are the things you have to believe to truly be a Christian. And there's six or seven key doctrines. Like if you deny those, I, I can't even consider you a brother or sister in Christ. And then you have the distinctives, which are like, yeah, we can agree to disagree, but that's going to make fellowship in a local church really tough. And so we agree on distinctives as we gather as a local, several local churches in Windsor with different distinctives. And then the, the next circle out are like the true disputable freedom in Christ. Yeah, we're, we're not quite on the same page, but we don't mandate any particular one view. So you... The way you determine those are several things, um, how they impinge upon the character of God, how they impinge upon matters of eternal salvation or authority. Um, those are like key, core ones. The next ring out would be uh, what's necessary for us to have warm fellowship. So anything that we, we visually disagree on is different than something that we disagree on more theoretically or in our minds. And then uh, other issues of you know, latitude. So I, I find that kind of helpful. And uh, over the course of your life, too, like a person that's just learning to study the Bible may have less clarity in any one of those rings than a person who's been doing it for a long time. And clarity might not come from pushing more things to the center. It might come from pushing more things to the outside. Because there's things I would fight over 20 years ago I wouldn't fight over, over today, but there's things I would fight over today that I wasn't thinking about 20 years ago. Yeah. I like the way how Sign of the Spirit of God is working. Yeah, it's just, it's so here's a, all at once here's like a mini example of that. A few times in my ministry, I've had someone from the church come up to me and they say, hey, do you, you must listen to such and such. I'm like, who? You must listen to such and such. No, I think I've heard their name or whatever, because they're preaching on the same thing right now. Oh, I didn't even know that. And I've noticed that in my tenure as a pastor, that there's, there's like, I don't want to call them hot topics, but there's things you often see being addressed, let's say in the North American church, that are kind of in common. And it's not because everyone's spending all week listening to everyone else's stuff, but if the Spirit of God is descending upon preachers of the gospel,
and we're living in a similar type culture, no matter where we are in North America, you're going to expect that certain themes are going to come out of the Word of God and be emphasized because we preachers actually live in your world too. And, you know, we see what's going on. So there's going to be like similar burdens without necessarily even knowing that the guy down the street's doing the same thing. So I would just, I just think we, that's just another example of the Spirit of God working. Yeah. Glenn? I think one thing this uh, course does, it, it clarifies that the gospel of Scripture has continuous reformation in our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It didn't start 500 years ago yeah. and 200 years ago. It continues today and it continues for yeah. And probably even today, these reformation as yeah. the church yeah. And no longer believing that scriptures are inspired word of God. Yeah, I, I just jumped on Google today. I typed in 500th anniversary Reformation, and there's like hardly any news agencies reporting on it. I just thought that was really interesting. Like gay pride gets more coverage. And um, there's fewer people in gay pride rallies than there are in Protestant churches. So, but the one article I just read really briefly, I think it was on BBC, accurately summarized it and then immediately went into Luther's anti-Semitism, which was terrible, right? And um, so my response to that is without excuse, not excusable, but to your point, there's a lot of deformation in all of us and no one person's going to reform his entire life or her entire life and his church and his culture in one generation. We're all contributing. Hopefully, when all of us close our eyes in death, we can say we individually contributed on some small level to the reformation of God's church. But there's never going to be a point in history where it's like, we finally got it down, we all arrived, woo, hope the next generation doesn't take us backward, hopefully the next generation is taking us forward. And that, that also speaks, by the way, to our, our optimism for the generations that will follow us. I'm, I'm an optimist in that regard. I'm not one of those guys, all oh, the young people have abandoned Christianity. Some of my favorite Christians are a lot younger than me. Some of my least favorite Christians are Glenn's age. <laughs> Glenn and Marilyn excluded. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, and again, there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of dear older Christians, but I, I am very excited about the tenacity for God's word and the the precision that I see and the commitment that I see in a lot of people that are my children's age. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm not one of those guys, oh, after we go, everything's going to close down. I'm excited about what, what's coming. But we have to feed into that too. Right? Yeah. Other comments? Yeah. I love to read the works of John Milton, who was himself a Puritan. Mm. Lots of good Puritan writers, by the way. Tons of them.
Yeah. It's just interesting to see the constant divine game yeah. being played out across history with winners and losers. Yeah, for sure. And it Good also point. kind of brings up kind of the inscrutability of yeah. the whole thing. I can't figure any of this out, but I have what's in front of me. Yeah. So I'm just going to run with that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good word. And you know, just bear this in mind, okay? So God's, God's ultimate mission is, is not you. God's ultimate mission is to bring himself glory, to be, to be loved by his creatures, and to be glorified. That's his ultimate mission. Like, that's the vertical mission, the horizontal mission. No, he's, it's all about you. He just loves the world, loves the world, loves the world, loves the world, loves the world. Yeah, but you know what? God actually loves himself more than he loves the world. Like, is he allowed to? Yeah, he is. <laughs> and in order to bring love to himself, he goes after his enemies. He does not go after those who think they have the capacity in themselves to love him. He always goes after his enemies, and that includes everybody. But the person that thinks that they have enough love or religious, call it religious gumption, or knowledge to pursue God on their own, they remain God's enemies. Because God's love is best displayed when he converts one of his enemies to himself. And so in a broken world, we just see that over and over again, like broken churches, broken people, broken leaders, God bringing about reformation. So he gets the glory. And you can never say, well, that person was just really smart. So hey, we're not here to idolize Martin Luther or some of the other great reformers like Waldo. Um, you know, we're, we're here to point people to, was he in the Reformation by the way? Uh, to point people to God. We couldn't see him. So the behind the scenes reform. Good. Hey, um, how has this affected your view of the church you belong to? Was that of that church you're raised in? Just curious if you've had like those moments you're like, oh, okay, now I know why we do that. Or now I know why I was raised that way. So. Let's just talk to that a little bit. This is a fascinating topic in my view. Could you have your hand up, Andre? Well, oh. I, I didn't, but I, okay. I do have a thought, which is it's, it's kind of shown me how little, because I was Roman Catholic for a very long time, okay. and um, how little the church, even Roman Catholic <coughs> schools, actually teach what they believe. Because oh, yeah. even just listening to what my daughter says or... Uh, cause she goes to the Roman Catholic school, and then when she gets home, I say, okay, sweetie, we're biblical Christians. That's not what we believe, and I kind of curve it, but at least she gets to hear about yeah. you know, Jesus at school. But even asking, talking to my, my parents or my sister or anybody that's Roman Catholic and just stuff that I've heard, and I just go, you know, where's the authority? Uh, and they all go to Scripture, and I'm like, really? Is that where it actually is? And they're like, absolutely, 100%. I'm like, then you don't know your own religion. Like, I'm, I'm gentle about it, but it's right. funny to hear that they don't know their own religion as well as they think they do. And to be fair, a lot of them are actually more, I would say, more Protestant than they are Catholic just because they actually don't know their own doctrine. Mm. And so it's, it's kind of shown me that, that yeah. it's not really taught and, too much. And I think one of the cultural realities of that is because when you, when you like own a school system, you own a part of culture. When you own a part of, part of culture, you don't have to fight for substance as much. Um, but Protestant Christians don't own a, uh, a, 
an institution or organization like that. So they do have to fight for it more. But for other reasons, notably secularism, notably scienceism, notably rationalism. So we're not opposed to science. We're not opposed to the rational mind. But when those things become isms that are greater determinants in your thinking for truth than revelation is, which is a different avenue for truth, which historic peoples all acknowledge, modern people just don't. They think it's foolish. But when those things become isms, then you have a lot of Protestant churches that have dropped a lot of their teaching as well. Because they, they think they have to apologize for revelation if it's not explainable using rationalism or scienceism. And I'm just going to challenge you, by the way, because this is really important to me. It's a worldview issue. It's not even a religious thing. But to what degree have you become convinced as a person living in the Western world that truth is only that which is discoverable using your five senses? Like, to what degree do you actually believe that? Most of us believe that. We don't like to admit it, but we actually believe that to be true. That if I can't touch it, taste it, smell it, see it, or hear it, it's not true. And so truth becomes determined based upon me, in fact. My ability to comprehend or not comprehend makes it true or false. My ability to see or not see makes it true or false. Now just think about that for a moment. Prior to April the 25th, 1973, I did not consciously exist in this world. So were all those things that I didn't see, feel, touch, smell, and hear, did they not, were they not real back then? Like what makes me think that my capacity to see it, touch it, feel it, hear it, see it, makes it true. But if for some reason I, I did not have the capacity to engage with the, the world around me and use my senses to determine it's true, hey, it's still true or false. But even beyond that, by virtue of the fact that in my worldview, I'm a created being in a temporal world, in a temporal universe that was created by an eternal being in a non-temporal world, in a non-temporal universe, I must, even if I want to talk about logic or the rational mind, I must believe that there is something called revelation that supersedes the rational. And this is really, really helpful because I even see this in Christian apologetics where we're trying to defend the veracity of Scripture or the existence of God using stuff I can see, taste, taste, touch, smell, or hear. And those things can point us in that direction, but I was not designed with the adequate tools to comprehend all that is true. So God then speaks to us through revelation. And revelation becomes a higher form of knowledge in the Christian mindset than the rational mind. It's super rational. So this is when, when we say, I believe this by faith, we do not mean that we believe this by sentiment. We do not believe that we have chosen to believe this even though we know it's not really true. That's not faith. Faith means I've had revelation given to me and I'm believing that revelation to be true. That's faith. And so in that respect, faith is superior to reason. 
But all of us have been told through crappy preaching and the worldview that we live in that faith is a pitiful little sniveling younger brother to reason. It's, it's kind of so embarrassing we don't even want to talk about it in the public sphere. And it actually goes back to, well, it goes back to authority. It goes back to believing that we are the source of authority. If this guy, if I can't see it, it's like Tom at the Thomas effect. If I can't taste it, touch it here, it's, it's not real. And what does Jesus say? He reveals himself to Thomas and says, blessed are those who have not seen but believe. What's he saying? Blessed are those that are stupid? Blessed are those that are dunces that put their brain on the shelf when they go to... Is that what Jesus is saying? No. He's saying, blessed are those that believe in revelation over their own ability to comprehend truth. I just find that to be like such a helpful thing to understand in the Christian life. And it affects everything. Is that, is that helpful? Some of you are like, I don't know what he just said. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just make a comment? Yeah. Um, uh, to me, it may, it maybe you're using the word revelation as in like a revelation that God eventually reveals it to us. I, I feel like faith is something that you just, you know, you just, it's a feeling. It, to me, it's it's just there. It's it's not like thought out. It's just there. It's a gift. That, that's okay. Yeah, I like the gift part. That's a, that's a gem. Um, that's my favorite part of what you just said. Um, the it is it is a feeling, but we have to define feeling too. You're right. Uh, it is. It does involve the mind, but it's. It's not just any one of those things. So see, we have to, it's so weird because in this life we are unified beings. So the body, the soul, the spirit are connected. So when you think of the mind, what is the mind? What is the spirit? Well, if I have a brain that works, is that that my mind and only my mind? How does my spirit comprehend things to be true? Well, a person with a diminished mental capacity can have a greater spiritual experience than someone with a great mental capacity who's not a believer. So it's like a different part of you. It's your, your soul, your spiritual man. It's something that God has awakened, by the way, which prior to justification is dead. It's non-existent. So you can be the genius like Richard Dawkins, who's got all these arguments. And he's only a two-thirds living being. His body's alive, his soul's alive, his spirit is dead. So that's why he can't comprehend these things. Plus, his worldview says, I am the determining factor for what's true or not. And the spirit's enlivened. You're worshiping God. There's a part of you that's alive in the moment, that's alive to a greater degree than if you're studying a math equation that you know with your mind is true. So it's a spiritual encounter. And yes, it involves feeling. It involves the mind. It involves the body, the emotions, all of that. And it doesn't exclude those. I mean, you just know it. You don't have to sort of think or justify it. Maybe I'm using yeah. the wrong word. No, that's here. fine. <laughs> yeah. But oh, you good. know, you don't have to list your reasons because mm-hmm. it's it's just given to yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. Good. I went back to what you said before. I tell me if this is right or wrong. I think it was uh, Peter Damien who said that uh, properly understood philosophy is the handmaid of theology. Yeah. So that denotes like authority. 
and theology has authority over philosophy. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, like philosophy picks up after the Greeks. Yeah. Theology historically in universities was always called the queen of the sciences. Like that would just not go over well today. But the highest degrees were the ones in divinity. It was always the queen of the sciences. It trumped everything because you're studying God and God was acknowledged. Philosophy is just wisdom words. That's what it means, wisdom words. And philosophy, you know, there's wisdom literature in the Bible. They're wisdom words. They're observations about life in the horizontal world and how relationships work and what to do and what not to do. That's philosophy. And there's biblical philosophy and there's extra biblical philosophy and there's humanistic philosophy. But yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't need to set aside philosophy in order to study theology, but it is the handmaiden of, it's subservient to. So philosophy, phileo, like wisdom words, theology, God's words, which trumps the other. God's words, theology trumps philosophy. But because we want to fit in, they don't offer too many doctor of theologies anymore. They offer doctor of philosophies in theology. So even that change of nomenclature says something about trying to kind of measure up to something, some worldly view, and trying to you know, be accredited by and recognized by, I would just say, the world systems. And I'm not saying that's like a blatant. I, I'm looking at like distant behind the scenes stuff. I'm not think I don't think anybody's out there. Let's get God out and get philosophy in, but it just kind of belies or betrays some of our, our mindset, I think, when the word philosophy is more prestigious than the word theology. Okay, a couple minutes. How do you see the Reformation as having affected and shaped society? Which is what have you learned? Just a couple observations I'd like to hear from you. What what's kind of stood out for you? Economics. Sorry? Economics. And just the fact that um, under Roman Catholic rule, um, you didn't really have a say. So even in terms of your vocation um, and what you did for work and working directly for Jesus, that wasn't a concept. So being able to separate that in the new world, so to speak, or with Protestantism, it gave everybody a, a straight line, which allowed even the lowest in society to feel a sense of value and worth. Mm. Yeah, nice. Protestant work ethic, the way that it built societies. Yeah. And there's a motivation is there's opportunity. In some of the old cultures of Europe, there was no opportunity. See, what the Americans got right was an emphasis on the the notion of freedom as the highest political virtue. Mm. I see that, at least in my own mind, as coming directly from Scripture in the sense that entire point of God, Jesus coming was to glorify God. Mm. But his manner of doing that seemed to be through the setting free of individuals. Yeah. He was yeah. a breaker of change. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I noticed was um, that came strong to my mind was that Satan had really had his grip on the world by allowing the message of the gospel to be stifled. No longer did you have access to what Jesus really said because it was an unintelligible to the average person. Yeah. And the ones who were controlling were so corrupt that effectively, you know, Satan was winning the big battle for the world. Mm-hmm. And then at the Reformation, when God allowed these reformers to come forward, he allowed the word of God to get back in the hands of people and his yeah. message of truth come forward. So that was really yeah. the poignant part for me. Yeah, very good. I think the way 
in shapes today that it created a lot of denominations, right? And also created a lot of atheists at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it exposed the um, the practicing atheists, or we shall shall we say the practicing Christians who were in fact atheists. Because there's some of those in every church. I'm here because well, my culture says I have to be here. Yeah. You know, do you actually believe in God? Not really. And uh, yeah, now there's freedom to be more open and honest about it. You might even be patted on the back for it, but yeah, there's, there's atheists here in our church on Sundays that w would never admit it. But on, on the level of practice, they certainly are, yeah. I think I'd, um, I'd like to, to hear how you feel about that specifically because an atheist you know, sometimes I think maybe they would like to believe. Yeah. And so is it their fault? I know the words around and they could read it. Well, yes it is because revelation's been given. Revelation is the highest source of truth. And when you deny it because you have questions that flow from your mind, what that actually is, even though you've skirted around it in your mind and justified it, is you've placed yourself in the position of God. So every atheist intrinsically thinks they are God because their tools, their eyes, their nose, their mouth, their ears, their mind, has determined that God isn't true. And so atheism really is the highest expression of pride because yes. you're relying upon your tools to determine that which is true. You're refusing revelation. And you're therefore in the process of doing that. You're expressing that you believe you have the, de the ability to determine what's right or wrong. And that's why, by the way, when it comes to even a guy like me preaching the word of God, I'm not interested in trying to talk you into believing the word of God because I can frame it up with clarity or rationally. I'm interested in bringing you the word of God as it is written, removing any blinders that might be there for you to see it clearly, of course, and let the word of God do what I have, be I have absolutely no ability to do. So I'm not here to entertain you. Because the word of God properly preached has the capacity in and of itself as revelation to do all the trans transformational work needed. I don't need to spruce it up with psychology or philosophy or the arts or sciences. I might bring those in just to tip you off to the fact that I live in your world and it speaks truth into those disciplines or into our world. But the Bible just preached by itself has the capacity to transform human hearts. It really does. So, hey, thanks everybody for coming. I, I hope this has been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me. And um, let me just pray us out of here. And uh, uh, let's, you know, as Glenn mentioned earlier, let's keep the Reformation going in our own hearts and in our own lives. So, Father God, we're just so thankful that you've spoken truth to us. I, I believe that what we've talked about at many points and, and junctures in our lectures ha have been helpful. And I just pray that they would stick now and that you would uh, just refresh us and encourage us and uh, bring us greater clarity as we uh, increasingly surrender ourselves to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.